Welcome to the Luminous Podcast, weekly meditations, readings, and blessings to assist with our rest, peace, and spiritual wellness. You can find out more at LuminousAnglican.com. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You know, I love how Chad punctuates the liturgy from time to time with little instructive moments to help us all get up to speed on why we do what we do. And it occurred to me when I just looked down at uh, my worship folder, uh, some of you may not know what a canon is. It says the Reverend Canon Art Going. That's not my first name. Um, that's Anglican speak for assistant to a bishop. That's it. Yeah, we, we love our terminology, don't we? As I retired earlier this year, and by the way, it's still kind of hard to get those words off the tongue. As I retired, um, I was asked to take a look back at 40 plus years of pastoral ministry and, and to talk to a group of ordinands who were just at the early stage, just beginning. And as I was getting ready, preparing, uh, I went into my usual Enneagram 5 mode. I told Nancy how I was thinking about the task, you know, pulling out articles and books that I'd read over the years, all those things that had informed my mind and heart. And she said, no, no, that is so derivative. Don't go all five on them. Don't just be the bibliographer. Tell them stories. Tell them what you've learned, not from books, but from people. Fortunately, I'm a five with a four wing, so that's not altogether impossible. She reminded me that she'd be praying that I'd be able to help those young ministers hear how the call to pastor can be deep and lifelong, despite the inevitable frustrations with the church. Anybody here know about that? Well, I started first again, because that's how I roll, with a story from the distant past, not my past, because it provided me with a motif that tied together my life and work. I told them a story about St. Augustine in the early fifth century. Augustine, having lived for himself, I mean lived gloriously for himself, lived riotously for himself, dabbled in false cults, pursued the satisfaction of his desires nonstop. Some of you know the story that at Augustine's confession, or really just right before, he prayed, Lord, save me, but not yet. Augustine was eventually brought to faith in Christ in the city of Milan in northern Italy, whose bishop was the eloquent Ambrose. Recalling on one occasion how he had come to faith, Augustine reflects on the influence of Ambrose. This is what he wrote. He said, it was not your great teaching. <laughs> I scarcely expected to find that in the Christian church in any case. It was not your great teaching, but that you were kind to me. Augustine came to see that the God and Savior of Ambrose 
must himself be kind. And if kind, then perhaps this savior whom Ambrose preached would be willing to accept even Augustine, pardon his sins, and transform his life. Augustine said the whole gospel is about the kindness of God. Well, I, um, I got to thinking about that. And that really wraps up my story. God's kindness, not his harshness, first drove us to Jesus and still does, doesn't it? Indeed, free grace salvation came to us, writes one colleague of mine, like a kindness epiphany. Love that phrase. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, Paul wrote to Titus, when that goodness and loving kindness appeared, he saved us. And so I went on that day in front of all those young ministers and ministers-to-be and told stories about how God shaped me along the way. And I can see it clearly now if I couldn't see it back then. It was so often about kindness, the kindness of people and the kindness of the God who made me a pastor in and through all of those encounters. And I think, I think that already 14 months on, could tell the luminous chapter of my life, this new chapter, that same way. An epiphany of kindness. And I'm betting that a lot of you could tell that story as well. But as I look back in my role as senior pastor in a succession of large suburban churches, and as I listen especially to the gospel reading today from Matthew 16, I also remember the expectation looming over my ministry at every turn, which can be encapsulated in a single question. It's a question people often ask me when I arrive to start a new position, or at least a question, what's your vision for the church? I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody on a parish council or on a search committee asked me that question. What's your strategy? What's your vision for the church? And we spent so much time and energy trying to work out our strategies for fulfilling that vision. And along the way, I think we often were so busy trying to build a church that conformed with our dreams and our plans, <laughs> or one that we thought would market well, we ended up merely burning people out or creating platforms for celebrity. Which brings us to the stunning sentence at the heart of today's gospel, Matthew 16, 18. I thought back to all the times I was asked the question about my vision for the church and gosh, I saved them all. And so I went back this week and I checked out all the vision statements Go to the web sometime and just start looking at church websites. They're replete with vision statements. The little verse, verse 18, caused me to think about another question, an almost infinitely more important question. What's the vision of Jesus for the church? Jesus says in verse 18, I will build my church, 
Now, that's not the way it usually gets accented when you read. It says, I will build my church upon you, Peter. You're the rock. I'm not going to preach about Peter this morning. I'm not going to solve the linguistic conundrums around rock and the play on words. I'm not going to solve the question of whether or not this is the early papacy being put into place or if it's Peter's faith. Those are all wonderful discussions. But I'm going to focus on just this one sentence. Jesus says, I will build my church. Over the years, because a lot of my work in the last decade and a half was focused on mentoring young pastors, I've asked those young pastors to read an amazing book by the German pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you have read the book, Life Together. It's a must. It's published in 1939. Y'all don't need me to tell you what was going on in 1939 or what was about to unfold. Every time I read this book, I stop at this passage. Listen to these words. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. <laughs> Over the years, we were anything, if we were anything at all, we were earnest. Bonhoeffer goes on, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamers proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They entered the community of Christians with their demands, and they judge one another and God accordingly. It sounds so much like the kind of dreaming that has consumed American churches and pastors. Over the last decades, we thought it was up to us to build the church. Preaching on this very same gospel passage already in 1933, as he faced the takeover of the church by a nationalist ideology, Bonhoeffer named the illusion. It's not we who build, Christ builds the church. No human being builds the church but Christ alone. Whoever intends to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it, for he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. We must confess, he builds. We must proclaim, he builds. We must pray, he builds. We don't know his plan. We can't see whether he's building or pulling down most of the time. It may be that the times which by human standards are times of collapse are for him the great times of construction. It may be that from a human point of view, great times for the church are actually times of demolition. It's a great comfort which Christ gives to the church. We confess, preach, bear witness to Jesus, and Jesus alone will build where it pleases him. What that means is this, you and I are relieved of the burden of thinking that the building of the church is in our hands. It's not. It's not. Secondly, we can never know precisely what Christ is doing, how he's building. We, don't, we do have his promise, however, that he's not just out to save isolated in individuals, but he's out to create a new kind of community, 
a new family with ties of grace that are thicker than blood. And we know that part of his vision is that we will become more like him. Our job is simply to be faithful in the simple but all-encompassing task which he's given us, which is to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, to point to Jesus, to keep our eyes on Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews says. And here's an unexpected part of Jesus' vision. When he sets out to build, he uses the most unlikely materials in building his church. It's a strategic nightmare. Think about those unlikely materials. Peter. And that's all I'm going to say about the dude. (laughs) But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on you. And we know how that played out. And it wasn't because Peter was unusually holy or gifted. Years later, he would look back, Peter would, at how God used him to bear witness to Jesus and how the church flourished. And he reminded people in his first letter, it's a really little letter. Both his letters are are really little. The dude was an apostle, but they're really little. I mean, there, there are others who wrote much bigger books. But he writes that all of his friends were just living stones like himself who the divine stonemason, the Holy Spirit, was chiseling into shape so that they fit together. One of my literary mentors has suggested that a lot of the fussing and a lot of the pain we feel as members of churches is the spirit at work in us, chiseling us, getting us to the place where we actually can be fitted together to make a holy temple. Which brings me back to that story about St. Augustine at the beginning and to the realization that it was so often kindness, the kindness of people and the kindness of God that not only formed me as a pastor but built his church often, most often, in spite of my efforts and even contrary to what I had envisioned. This week, I came across a little exercise that surprised me, but that I think can encourage us to abandon our wish dreams about the church and look instead to the way Jesus has promised to build his church and in the offering to make us more like himself. If you want to know what it means to be Jesus-like, to be someone who grows in Christ-likeness, then look at the way Paul describes what he calls the more excellent way. It's in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, you've got to shelve the way you normally think about 1 Corinthians 13. You know, hallmark card, wedding, sermon text. Put all that away. Here's the exercise. Do it this week, please. Read through 1 Corinthians 13 out loud, and every time the word love appears, replace it with the word Jesus. I think that will make 1 Corinthians 13 come alive to you, and it will give you some sense of how Jesus intends to go about building his church. Here it is. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus 
does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. And my friends, that's the Jesus who says, I will build my church. I will build my church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you would like more information or ways to be a part of Luminous, please go to luminousanglican.com. Peace be with you.